It's the Ruby on Rails podcast, number 63, December 2007. Rails 2.0 is out today. Go get it if you haven't already. I'd like to take you on the spot as much as possible. This interview started in the back of a cab in London after the Future of Web Apps conference and continued at the home of James Cox, former developer on the PHP team, now a Rails developer in London and San Francisco. So, Jeffrey Grossenbach here in the back of a London cab, coming back from the Future of Web Apps with James Cox. Hey. So, what did you think of the conference this year? First time that I've been at a Future of Web Apps conference. It's the first time I managed to make my way into it, too. Um, and it, it's pretty cool in the sense that it's nice to have a real expo feel to, uh, to, to Web 2.0. Um, a lot of the old faces, a lot of the old uh, sponsors and vendors, but you know, at the same time, there are a few real you know, gems of wisdom that were great to see. Uh, that really stood out for me. Um, it made the conference kind of special. Any lectures in particular? That you, now, I'm not supposed to use lectures. You said in England, lecture is just like a school, right. college course. Right. Sessions. Sessions. Sessions that stood out for me. I was really impressed to uh, see um, as a presentation by Head of Accessibility from, uh, I think it's AccessNet or AccessibilityNet, uh, Robin Christopherson. Um, he was a blind guy. He came up on stage with his guide dog. Um, and sort of walk through the kind of pain that exists for, for people who have disabilities in the real world. Walk through things like Amazon.com, Google's various different apps, which are all pretty good for supporting accessibility, uh, all the way through to startups, uh, and showing the real pain. Now, as a, as a sort of startup guy, as a sort of developer, it's pretty easy to sort of get towards sort of level one of the guidelines, sort of all tag stuff. Uh, but really making things really accessible are kind of hard, and it takes a lot of effort for what's perceivably less gain. But actually, when you see it for real on stage and see someone who actually has to go through this pain to endure it, it kind of really strikes a chord that actually not paying attention is kind of pretty evil. Um, and, and, and it really made me think that, I, that it was worth doing things and fixing this problem. And you hear a lot of things that, by watching it, you realize are false. For example, it was reading through the Amazon site and you would hear, you know, spacer, gif. And who wants to hear that? Exactly. I mean, if you're blind exactly. and it's reading through, you don't care that there's a gif. There are so many UIDs everywhere. And, and again, we look at our specs for being in HTML content, but why, why isn't there a spec that says, if this is a space of GIF, call it this name, and it becomes irrelevant well, to the screen reader? A month ago in Seattle, I heard a, went to refresh Seattle, a lecture by a, not lecture, now they're using right. it again, but usability expert from Adobe, and he said, alt and just a blank string, that's what you, if there's an image that doesn't awesome. have any relevance, just alt and uh, you know that's the quotes. hack that's cool that's fantastic I mean, I mean that's a really great way of just dealing with that problem and making it invisible to screen readers but at the same time I, I think to some degree someone talking with someone today I can't remember who it was but there was some discussion about it being kind of interesting um, that with the web being the web 3.0 or whatever that is next is it about being a web of data about being more about APIs and structure than it is about uh, UI if, if it could be that we could sort of move away from trying to make our, our, our web UIs, the prettiness that they are is fantastic. But what about if we move away and make them uh, for, 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 for perhaps able people and make a separate UI for those who need different requirements? Um, you know, it, it sounds sort of, sort of segregationist. It, it's not necessarily. It's just about saying we all have different needs and different requirements. So and Google, in fact, has done that. He showed there's a text-only view exactly. of Gmail, exactly. where, yes, we love all the Ajaxification of Gmail, but you can still do it with text-only. Exactly. So it's about making it work for, for, for people who don't necessarily have all the support, uh, you know, themselves internally or, you know, with their browsers. 
Um, and, and I think that's going to work. That, that, could, that could be really interesting. The idea of actually browsing Dig or um, Pounce or Twitter or, or any kind of, or, you know, Delicious, whatever, any kind of API, this sort of central infrastructure, without having to... Um, I haven't used the UI, but actually being able to see on your own terms, defining how you want to consume it, I think is a really big part of it. And I think it's okay to say that, you know, I might might want to consume this thing by RSS only, or I might want to consume this thing by a screen reader, or I might consume it on the phone. It doesn't matter what it is, but I have my requirements on what I I need. And that's part of everything for everyone. Maybe that's a good result of APIs and people just starting to think more about machines and people using content the same content in many different ways i think it definitely is i think it's a nice side effect almost like a side benefit but if we if we think too hard about making it really work really well for disabled people uh, and those who need different different viewports um i I think we could get in a situation where we could become too concerned about those people not not too concerned about about but we can come sort of so entwined about making it work in that respect we we don't do a good job I think if we just have this sort of agnostic approach to developing, that everyone has their own opinion about how they want to consume it, uh, regardless of whatever they have, everyone's equal, right? So really, I think that this, this means that we can get there quickly um, and not have to worry about things. It means that people can write their own screen browsers, own browsers that necessarily consume feeds right off the bat. Because you know, if you're blind, it doesn't matter how pretty or and how web to your site looks, it's not really going to work for somebody who can't see it. Um, and if you can make sure they get to the content really quickly, they can enjoy it just as much as everyone else can. Along that same lines, I was impressed with a lecture by Matt Bidolf. I'm not going to be right. able to stop using the word lecture. I get it. Session by Matt Bidolf talking about Doppler tracking where you are in the world and where you're going to be traveling. And he was talking about using OpenID not only as a way to log in, but to then... If you're an OpenID server, then users can get their data from your site and realizing that the data belongs to the users, they should be able to use it however they want to. Exactly. I think there's definitely this... this I mean, Matt calls it uh, from the Weinberger novel, um, not novel, Weinberger book, uh, many pieces loosely joined. Uh, and I think there's a lot of truth in that. I, I think many of the guys who are... Many people who are early adopters and people who use the internet a lot uh, are already really bored um, of having to... Uh, enter content again and again and again, having to review things again and again and again, having to fill profiles again and again and your again. friends, your, yeah. Exactly. I've defined who my friends are, I have to define the context they exist in, why should I do that again? Uh, and, and so people are going to have to be, you know, have to agree as one step turn off. Just to the right, we'll be just down here, mate. So back safely, home of James Cox, Greenwich. I haven't gone to see the, uh, what, you can stand on the actual date line. Is that close here? That's right. It's the Meridian Point. It's just up the road. Uh, and you can stand at the Royal Observatory, which is the international date line, uh, and be literally in uh, one half of the world, uh, in one leg, and the other half of the world, the other leg, is down astride the, the date line, which is pretty cool. I'll have to do that in the morning. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a fun walk, actually. So we left off usability, met bit off... Data accessibility, social networks, open ID. Right, and and so we talked a little about the idea of the social graph and the idea that, that you know we all own our data um, and the walled gardens of 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 the password protected areas of Facebook, MySpace, um, as two examples. Also, you, you know, AOL, any anything you have content in that you can't really easily federate out. Last FM is an example um, where some of us have lots of content. 
and have no really well, no, no real way of getting access to it in, in an external way. We can't click a button and just export everything. Um, but, but even in that degree, exporting everything with a one click isn't actually necessarily that useful. What I much rather do is say, uh, a better example would be to say, Doppler knows where I went and has an idea of my GPS location, potentially. Flickr sees what I saw. Why can't the two talk to each other and actually Doppler can tell Flickr uh, where I went? So the photographs that were taken during the time that I was traveling give an indication of where I was uh, at the time. And because Flickr, Doppler and I trust each other, we have a trust circle, um, if that's the right term, then we have a way to, to sort of federate that content and, and make that content meaningful. And part of that was talked about by Tom Coates of Yahoo, Fire Eagle, I guess it's going to be called about something yeah. differently later, but basically a way to pull in location-based data, find out where you are, and then in a trusted way pass that on to other services. Absolutely. And and this again, this idea of that, there's, you know, I really, really believe that that in the in the forthcoming web there's going to be a number of really core cool function functional and foundational infrastructural services that are going to exist delicious is probably the first big example of such a service uh, as is um, as is fire eagle uh, as is sort of these kinds of ideas of, of, of things that exist not necessarily and Twitter is sorry is the other big seminal example they don't necessarily exist to make a straight up business model they don't necessarily exist to have a UI that people care about they exist to be able to do the job of routing uh, information really effectively uh, routing storing whatever the, whatever the task is and in doing so people can interact with them their API is usually pretty good and then you have this really nice kind of mashup mix up kind of approach where you can really effectively uh, get feedback and response uh, and make that web loosely joined together enough that the, that the content is meaningful but the content is distributed and, and open enough that you don't have to do it again and again and again it seems like a lot of this is almost trying to recreate kind of the real world and the virtual world or connect the two or recreate kind of a small village where I go to the store yeah I saw Bert and here it's like oh here's what I'm thinking, here's what I'm feeling, here's where I am physically, sharing that with friends and linking that all over the world. Yeah, I mean, it, it is kind of, I think a lot of building the web is all about iteration, it's all about taking what we know and believe and understand and being able to make some sense out of it all and trying to, you know, mix that up with, almost with what, what we understand and what we're used to and what we can what we can actually interact with in the, in the real world, in the real space. Um I can say that some of it's going to be hard for individual users to figure out. We're struggling to conceptualize it all right now. How are we going to present this to end users in a couple of years uh, as a proposition for how they should start using the web when still, you know, the search bar is 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 the main way to find things online uh, and find real domains and, and, and things that wouldn't necessarily be search terms. So I think we've got a long way to go to educate users and, and make them aware of what kinds of things we're experimenting with the web and how this and how this might go forward um, but definitely uh, there's lots of, there's lots of I think moving towards what we have as expected norms in communities and trying to make the web internet technology IT computing more accessible and, and, and friendly to people who wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily find it that way right off the bat now this hasn't been the first iteration that you've been on the web you were on the commit team or maintainer of PHP? Right. I, I was uh, involved 
almost back in the day uh, in dot com version one, picking up PHP and uh, and helping the crew uh, fix the websites that we had and looking after the servers and you know filing a couple of patches here and then when I felt I could add value without breaking the uh, the code base. So you know it's it's fun to see this this and you said it right. It is actually an iteration, and it's fun to see this iterative rep this iterative. It, I can't. This word is hard to say. The iterative <laughs> web, um, and see that again and again we're, we're kind of refining, refactoring, and really beginning to sort of polish off the edges of what we did the first time around. Um, I, I think that's a good thing, um, but also we have to respect that we, we those of us in the, in the industry are quite capable of handling refactoring, but other people are kind of more happier learning something and, and knowing how to use it. The more we iterate and change and, and accept change doesn't necessarily mean that everyone else who uses it does the same thing too. So I'm, I'm, I'm concerned that we're iterating where iteration is not necessarily what's required. That we should learn more from the past or come up with new ideas? It's, yeah, it's a bit of both, but at the same time it's not. It's about looking at how people are, how people are actually really using the web. And sometimes it's, it's going to say throw away some of the really good things that we've done. And sometimes you can be saying, teach individual users that they're, what they're doing is wrong and not really what the web's about. So there's, there's a bit of a give and take in this respect. Um, but if we can find ways that we can keep keep looking back at what our strategy is, what our direction is, what our kind of thoughts are, and seeing if, if people are really picking them up, um, if they're making sense of it, you know, are people who aren't technology people being able to get at this um, and and discern and decipher what it is. Um, a good example is Flickr. A lot of early adopters love Flickr. I love Flickr. Uh, one of my favorite web apps. Um, but it took me a while to figure out how Flickr worked because none of the UI was particularly obvious, and the interface was kind of hidden away behind mouse overs and and uh, and clicks uh, to really d- to uncover the uh, the edit f- fields. Now that's really nice. It's unobtrusive. But for 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 my parents and my grandparents. You know, it's pretty hard for them to figure out that kind of thing if, if they're still not quite sure how a form works um, and, 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 the, and the way that that works. I don't know the answer to this. I don't know, how, I don't know whether we teach them, uh, non-techies, as to how this thing works. I don't know if we just simply admit this is a problem and keep thinking of it as we build new things. Uh, would definitely be a good first step. I'm always amazed that somehow we've been able to educate, mili- educate millions upon millions of users that they need a www on the front of every web address and it's not a valid web address if that's not there and yet you know it's completely irrelevant absolutely I mean back in the day when, when the web was new the idea of www World Wide Web was identified this was, the, this was the set of pages documents that existed to describe the service that you were accessing and that was the sort of this sort of loosely defined protocol and it's kind of stayed around since but um, I think I, I've had this sort of argument with myself and peers and and uh, sometimes uh, clients of mine and said, look, this is really not you know required. At the same time, mellowing out a bit and drinking some fine wine kind of tells me that that there's some value in actually saying www means this sector of the site is the web documents. API dot means this sector of the site is 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 your is your interface. Uh, email or mail but this is where you go to get your email I mean it's it's simplistic it's naive but it, to some degree the idea of having a subdomain to segregate meaning and, and giving you immediate context 
of what exists at this point is great. And and having no WW which redirects to WWW is kind of like a handy shortcut for those who don't want to type it. Uh, those of us who, who kind of like the simplicity of not having WW, which seems feels redundant, but but in a sense it's not because again we're moving towards this idea of of, of this you know loosely connected interweb of, of of ideas and things. It's not just about documents so much. It's not just about this one UI. It's about uh, an application that provides many interfaces. So so having WW kind of kind of is right because that's your web UI. Maybe we should change it to UI dot or web dot whatever it is. Um, and then having other subdomains is a great way to segregate different different ways you can consume that content, and that's great. That's fantastic. And more than ever, people are using subdomains. I mean, I'm, I don't know if I really even used that many subdomains up until 2002 or 2003, and then suddenly it progresses, and we want an API, and we want uh, even what in Rails uh, 2.0, they're going to have a bunch of asset servers that could be. All on the same server or separate. We're using usernames as uh, you know subdomain keys host names, into right. host names, all this kind of stuff. Absolutely, I remember the day. I, I think Yahoo still do this. They they own a domain yimage.com for their image hosting. Uh, AOL do the same kind of thing. Amazon have similar things, um, and, and and that's all well and good. I mean, back in the day, that's how you did things. You went out and bought you know expensive domain because they were expensive back in the day. Uh, and because it was expensive, they weren't taken right off the bat. People didn't speculate quite so much as they do right now. And and you would host things in different domains because it meant you could segregate the content that way and it was easy. Nowadays, domains are scarce. New ideas are scarce. And when you when you come up with a nice domain, uh, and also we know that Google Juice is important, so things that are subdomains kind of have value if the, if the parent domain has some kind of value already by itself. That's part of the semantic web as well, exactly. even the URL, the domain. It's, it's an ontology. It's a hierarchy. It has a context. Uh, of who owns this. It's not just throw all your data into the query string. Exactly. So having having this kind of context right off the bat from a subdomain is, 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 is fantastically useful. And yeah, I love not having GoDaddy email me every month with yet another domain name I have to you know renew or update or purchase or whatever it is. And, and, and having less domain names is, is good because it means that, you know, this is where I exist, this is where my content exists. These are the clear definitions of, of, of group ownership. And within those groups there are uh, you know, there there are the, the services that they provide in, in in a clearly defined way. Anything about the conference that you disagreed with? Anything controversial? I, I'm, not false. It, it's hard. It's hard not to say that there's shark jumping when you see vendorized uh, you know, uh, exhibition uh, tied into uh, tied into conference. That said, Linux World has been running successfully for many years, and so have other other apps. And so you could argue that Linux hasn't necessarily, you know, suffered because there are expos running twice a year, um, and and many many conferences around around the world. The conference was, I mean, obviously it was the first time for for, for Cast and Fired to to use uh, this kind of venue uh, and this kind of structure. So obviously there were a few teething problems that were. That that were that were fixed, but the Carson guys are pretty good at you know resolving these issues as they went along, and so I don't feel that it was a bad conference. Um, I, I think the the takeaways for me were, of course, as always, the lobby track is the best track. Uh, you always get to have insightful, interesting conversations with people, and 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 to some degree, um, it's all well and good if Microsoft are going to provide beanbags for people to sit on or Xbox games to crowd around. Uh, I, I still feel that conferences don't really respect the lobby track well enough. And so I definitely like to see some space, which is just about having uh, tables, 
uh, chairs and free coffee and, 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 and water or whatever it is that you want to give away. Uh, much better than having an open bar, perhaps. Um, there's this way to be able to let people connect and in a nice, relaxed, chilled-out atmosphere. That's a fascinating idea. I've never even thought of that, of a conference actually catering to people who just want to be there, talking to each other. The lobby track. Social. Everybody I talked to, they, they had a hard time coming up with the one single lecture, uh, session that they really enjoyed, but they said, oh, I talked to you know, 5, 10, 20 different people, had fascinating conversations. Having that built into a conference would be amazing. Absolutely. I, I was lucky enough to go to a music festival. Uh, I won a ticket uh, a month or so ago, and, and one of the best experiences was late at night after a couple of the uh, gigs had played out, and I was heading back to the tent, and uh, I was kind of looking for something just to sort of just take the uh, just to wind down a little bit. And there was a uh, one of the tents that was there it was a nice big sort of open marquee tent where there are lots of sort of you know padded flooring and couches and sofas and lots of pillows. And you know I went in there and got a nice chai latte or whatever the thing it was chai tea um, and like that and just sat back and enjoyed my chai, listened to some music and just listened to conversations. And, and you know, and said hi to some people, and it was nice. It was just relaxed. I didn't have to worry about is this new session on or whatever. I was just, I was just making connections. Um, and and a lot of a lot of, I actually find that I, I evolve the ideas that I'm thinking about somewhat by listening to people talk about it upstage, but also by just discussing it with people who who share those ideas, who disagree with those ideas, and beginning to iterate on some of these things and finding people who share that you can work with and people who, who, who don't that you can bounce ideas from and, and learn from. And and so the lobby track is definitely, I'd say, a massively huge part of, of, of any successful conference and, and more attention should be paid towards that and, and catering for that uh, and, and finding ways to, to really effectively... Uh, help people benefit from that. I was interested how Rails showed up. This was not a Rails-specific conference. Probably over the last two years, I've attended 90%, 90% of the conferences I've been to have been about Ruby or Rails. And now here's one was was more general web development. Of course, I was at South by Southwest as well. But the things that came up, of course, we had apps presented, Fire Eagles being done in Rails, Yahoo's uh, geocoding thing. Uh, I didn't know that. As far as far yeah, as he threw up the uh, the logo there, and he said they even had written it in something else, and then they wow. stopped and started I, over. I and, given that Yahoo are, are are officially adopting PHP as a standard in their organization, having it in Rails is extremely interesting. I think that's what. It, of course, this is part of a kind of a development side of Yahoo uh, that they're sure. doing prototyping and. But and Yahoo are, are transferring their properties to all PHP. They're ditching their own internal language. They produce uh, Yahoo DSL or whatever it was they, they called it, and uh, I mean PHP, so they can make it you know effectively manage their their, their teams. Um, so having a Rails thing is, is a big win. But it was surprising. Exactly. And, and going back to what you're saying, I think it's undeniable now that yeah, that, that Rails is now a acceptable and a, a well-respected Web 2.0. I don't say that. A web language. It's, it's, it's a plat- it is a framework for, for building web platforms, web APIs, web apps, whatever, uh, in, in a really effective and useful manner. And, and, and the more we see things like Twitter and I think it was a Figlet that was one of the AOL... A guy set up, which was a you know, mini story app, uh, who, who picked Rails, SlideShare.net being a Rails-based um, uh, application. I did not know either. They were running on Rails. So there's definitely, uh, the adoption curve is, 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 is definitely undeniable at this point and will only increase and, and, and be more 
noticeable. Um, and, and, and people who aren't necessarily using Rails for their own development for whatever reason, certainly looking at Rails and certainly respecting the kind of things that Rails teaches. Uh, we all uh, remember Rocky when... Uh, uh, sorry, Karate Kid, sorry, when Mr. Miyagi uh, was the guy who was uh, teaching uh, the fella to, 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 to fight. You know, it wasn't so much that the uh, fella was a good was a good fighter as the fact that Mr. Miyagi uh, taught him patience and, and and care. We all remember the teenage mutant ninja turtles. <laughs> That's really it's long, yeah, it's it's long. and it was Splinter who held them together. You know, the, the, this idea of this rat model after a Japanese uh, sensei, and and and. Ruby has that. Ruby has that Zen sensei style behavior about itself, and it's hard to hard to look at Ruby and not admit that it's a language which basically encourages and and, and suggests really nice coding um, techniques and methodologies and style, and, and people respect that. One thing I really realized by talking to people was that. In an open source project, yes, many people are making money from Rails and, and promoting it and 37 Signals has done very well and they probably would have done very well even if they hadn't promoted Rails as an open source language and yet it's an open source framework and the people who use it are the PR department and a lot of people mentioned the article a couple of weeks ago about CD Baby being you know, you know rewritten in PHP in two months and, and felt like Rails didn't do what they needed it to do that kind of pr yes you need to be honest you need to get out and yet every developer who uses rails is a bit of pr for or against it yeah the pr machine is always a cranking and you know you look at java look at net and those guys have real professional people who are doing that job for them uh rails and open source is all about the strength of community and how the, how, how much the community stands out as being uh Proponents and evangelists for the language that they work, that they're working in. I remember back in PHP days, we we talked about this within the within the core group about how we want to evangelize PHP back because it, it itself was having adoption issues against Perl and .NET and ASP and uh, .NET wasn't even around I think initially uh, when we were looking at this. And so we set we set up this evangelism list, which was a moderated list because we were so worried about people were going to begin to start flame wars and things like that. And we set up the list with this idea of being able to sort of host questions about evangelism. Uh, and host um, discussions about how we can Im- encourage PHP to to take a stronger stance in the community, um, and um, it, it was kind of born out of this idea that, that that projects, open source or not, need need champions, need people who are who, whose job it is is to is to help people who aren't sure or who, who don't understand to be able to learn more. And pick up more, and and I know that Microsoft has certainly picked up on this a lot, and they're probably just about as many evangelists as there are developers in, in the in the organization, uh, and and blogs are a big part of it as well. Um, so evangelism of ideas is definitely a big part of, of what it is that we're seeing uh, online and elsewhere now, and and certainly developers by and large are are that. I don't want to get into talk about CD Baby too much, but suffice to say that that it wasn't Rails that failed. In this point, and uh, Derek Sivers has admitted that that it was Rails taught a, a, a kind of structure and behavior, but for them, PHP was a language they felt more comfortable in delivering upgrades and uh, and, and, and monolithic uh, solutions with. 
um, and that's 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 perfectly fine. If 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 all they take away was was it was a better way of developing, that's a good thing to take away. Early on, it seemed like there was a lot of advocacy for Rails, especially straight from David Hammer Hansen. That was you know this is the solution, and you must use this, or at least you know Java sucks. All these kinds of things, and it seems like maybe his tone has toned down a little bit from that and, and maybe the best kinds of Rails evangelism is going to be a little closer to the real world and yes, there's some situations where Rails is, is really a great choice and there are others where maybe you you need to look at it alongside other options. Absolutely. Um, I, I definitely think that when you are starting a new revolution, you want to get people to follow along. So you say incendiary things, you you light the fire so people can can... can can, can storm the charge, and and that's definitely a big part of of, of a new uh, a new idea. Now, DHH may still feel that that charge is valid, and some of us also agree with him. Uh, but the Rails has been out now for for a good strong couple of years in, in mainstream, and a year you know before that in in, in less of a mainstream. And and the outcome that the the, the big thing about that is is that what, what's happened in, in parallel to people using Rails is that other companies, other languages, other frameworks have begun to spring up. So you have Cake for PHP, you have similarities in Java languages and tool sets, uh, you have uh, you know, Erlang um, also competing in, in that space. So Rails no longer has a USP which is so far and above where it's at. Apple have this as well. Apple produced products and before they even managed to launch the iPhone, uh, LG had, had made a replica style thing and now we obviously have the HTC I think it's called uh, device so so companies tend to emulate excellence and I think that's the same thing true in, 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 the, in the sort of open source language space so the excellence perceived about Rails and the elegance that's there have been emulated elsewhere so so in a roundabout way what the revolution started and has probably much ended uh, for this for this iteration at least and Rails has sort of really begun to set itself become mature and and, and sitting back and, and, and making itself better in, in a more slowly iterative state in the way that most apps work and behave um, as a sideline I think now going forward it's going to be the strength of uh, things like well trusted applications to prove Rails worth uh, Twitter again being a very solid example um, and alongside that the kind of uh, if if Rails is to grow to be a massive community, it's going to things like certification, documentation, uh, and, and and other kind of teaching aids and, and and verification aids like certification, such that you can actually really begin to validate the people who are using it and working with it as as real practitioners of that of that of that business. Uh, and that's what happened with PHP. It's happened with MySQL. It's happened with Java and .NET with MCSEs and so on and so forth. So we could go down that path. Or we could just simply admit that we're, we're somewhere and now it's time to to relax and uh, let everyone else catch up. And one other thing I'd like to hear your opinion on, Paul Graham had the first keynote of the day, I guess the, the last day of the conference, and one of the things he said which was reacted to by several people I had dinner with today was that well, if you're going to be a startup, you need to spend at least some time in San Francisco. Quite a controversial thing to say in London. Obviously, a lot of people attending here, startups, technologists in London, being told that, no, you need to, 
you need to spend some time in San Francisco. You have spent time in San Francisco. You're going to be doing some consulting about the, out there. What do you think about that idea? Um, it, it, it's a funny idea. If you ever go to the, to the Bay, it's really hard not to do two things. One of which is to bump into people who are building the, building the apps that you're using every day. Everyone lives there uh, and, and build that stuff. Now, there's no real reason why that happens to be. It's just that people have sort of congregated around that space. It's not cheap to live. It's not you know it, it's nice to live. It's very pretty. Uh, it's 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 a lovely space, but it's not cheap to live, and it's not necessarily efficient in any particular way. It could easily be New York, Florida, or you know, or middle of nowhere in the Midwest. It just happened to be in California and, and the San Francisco. So, yeah, it's nice to have people around you. You can bounce ideas from and, and interact with and hear from and and have these kinds of experiences that we had today every day um, by by these sort of mini meetups. Um, Paul Graham has has a certain experience. He has a certain um, history uh, with the web apps he's done and the startups he's done and, and, and where he's been. And, and he feels that for, for Y Combinator at least, going to uh, SF or in fact Boston as they also do, um, you, uh, sorry, Cambridge, you can, um, Massachusetts and the East Coast, you can maximize and, and build value and be able to sort of see things. I think that if you want to be a successful startup in the first year or so of your life, going to San Francisco is not a bad thing. You can meet people. You can make biz deals if you feel you need to do that at that point in your life. You can uh, learn and, and, and float ideas and, and, and get feedback. Um, and that's not a bad thing. Uh, not at all. Um, but it's not necessarily necessary. I think you can survive without it. You'll certainly you know, uh, be a different beast, but you can certainly survive. And, and it's an interesting question because it just made me think that I rem- remember that a lot of the startups in London at the moment are pretty much money focused and money centric uh, it, it, you don't very often see unique innovation outside of London Last FM is a very very unique example of, of, a, of, a, of a UK London based company who were trying to do something that nobody else necessarily was in a, in a big way um, London companies just tend to try and monetize what other people have figured out uh, and that's sort of the normal sort of you know modus operandi uh, for, for startups in London. Um, Last of them were unusual, and in fact, almost went under a couple of times, uh, simply because trying to be innovative in London, where it's so expensive to operate, is is it, a difficult task. Um, on the corollary, trying to start up, start up by going to San Francisco for three months is also a bit tricky. So things and roundabouts, but London. London's interesting. It may have a community. The community is def- definitely growing, uh, but uh, it will never be anywhere near like the Bay. Well, you'll be traveling. You're consulting. Where can people find you? Well, like a ninja of uh, of, of any rails stripes, uh, I, I I do like to uh, get around a bit and uh, and maximize and make the most of what I do. Uh, uh, I, I would typically say uh, find me on my website, but my website is uh, tragically offline. It was uh, caught in the Great Server Fire of 2007, uh, and uh, I, I, I lost data irrevocably through a crazy backup system. So I'm 
I'm now found at conferences. I'm going to be uh, at Rails to Italy, which I think is going to be a fantastic uh, two-day event, which I'm really stoked to be speaking at and more stoked just to be there uh, and, and to hear from Zed and OBA again and and to hear from some of the uh, Rails people in, in, in Italy and Holland who are going to talk about some some really interesting and unique things. So that's going to be a great experience and I think a really refreshing change from, from vendorization to actually you know developing. Uh, and then QCon in San Francisco, uh, which I'm looking forward to. It's very, very much vendorization, very much enterprise, but it's good to see that the how adoption is beginning to happen in that respect. Uh, missing RubyConf, which is a shame. Um, I think that would also be fantastic, but can't be in two places at once. They haven't figured that out yet. I hear 10 years out, but we're, we're not sure that. Um, uh, South by Southwest next year should be pretty cool. Uh, and then in between, uh, I'm always available... Uh, uh, via the ubiquitous email, which you can never really escape from. I wonder if, um, given this, this discusses the old podcast format, I wonder if uh, voicing the email is going to actually get me spammed or not. I'm not sure if that's true, but uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I, maybe I should come up with a little, little capture-style uh, uh, graphic. If you can repeat the letters 3, 6, 12, and J after me, then, then, uh, then you'll get the email, which, of course, is uh, james at smokeclouds.com, so... I'll be sure to uh, obfuscate that if this is transcribed. Uh, one would hope so. Well, thanks, James. It's been great, and uh, I've been uh, sleeping at your pad over the last couple nights, so appreciate that. Well, one has to, uh, you know, stretch out, reach out for a uh, for, for a brother in Wales. It's, it's just not uh, not 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 a thing to ignore. Well, thank you. Thank you. Rails Podcast is sponsored by Pete Code Screencast. Check out the Rails 2 PDF, and there's a new screencast updated for Capistrano 2.